from the Twin Cities PBS Archives, a conversation with Craig Rice, originally broadcast in 1991. He saw a memorable Billy Wilder movie when he was five and has been interested in film ever since. His projects include work with Pink Floyd, John Sayles, and local legend Prince. He hopes to produce a feature-length adaptation of an August Wilson play in the near future. Our guest is Craig Rice. Let's take like a moment of the interview and get rid of what has to be gotten rid of. <laughs> Let's take a moment out and talk about <laughs> Prince, and then we can move oh, okay, on. Okay, okay. Um, you and Prince hit it off, so. Yeah, so you, you, I mean, I really like him a lot. He's like, I mean, I, he's like my brother to me. He really is. I really love him. Um, you know, and we have our good and bad moments, but I really do love him. I think he is a pure genius, musical genius, of, I mean, on the level of Beethoven, Bach, and, and, um, I, 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 I find that so, so wonderful to see him create and to see him work. And, and also, he teaches you at the same time to, to do your best, um, you know, to do what you think is your best work and not just satisfied, be satisfied with, I'm finished with this, but really to go beyond that and to, 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 be, to explore. To, I mean, he's just really, really creative individual. You say that your cousins didn't make it out of the neighborhood. Yeah, and I mean, you did. Yeah, well, I, I was sort of had the advantage of of, of living. Um, my parents were real, real, real strong, and I think that then they gave us a uh, gave me specifically and my brothers and sisters a real strong sense of value, and uh, I think that was really important for me, especially for where I wanted to be in my life. I mean, I've sort of been, I'm one of those kids who always knew what he wanted to do. What did you want? I wanted to direct films. From what age? Five years old. Okay. So it, it's never been, it's always been there. And um, I wasn't sure. My parents were into the arts. They played music and, 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 and were uh, drew. And so they made us aware of it. We went to plays. We went to uh, symphony concerts. We went to, they made sure that we knew jazz and um, classical music, and we also had film books about it. And then my parents would say, "Okay, this is a, this director uh, did this movie. This director would do that movie." And they knew the names. They knew the names of the actors. And we'd also sometimes we'd go to three movies a week as a kid with my parents. So who inspired you the most? Um, probably my grandmother. She was really into it too, and and I still um, sort of watch movies the way she does. She had a tendency to to talk to the films, you know, and I still have a tendency to, like, do that. And, and well, give me an example of doing that. Um, it's you like, talk back along the yeah, was like, line? Well, it's like when they throw away the gun, you know. I say, don't throw away the gun. You're going to need the gun, that type yeah. of, of conversation. Or, or watch it, out. <laughs> right. right. Or watch out. And I remember as a child, um, you know, again, when I lived in St. Paul with her, I would, would watch her and say, why is she talking to the TV? But I would start getting into it and... and um, and now I find myself doing that, and, and uh, sometimes with the annoyance of other people that are around me. But it's it's kind of I, I always watch a film as the audience, even when it's something that I've worked on. I always try to watch it the first time, or even read a script or, or a play, um, as 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 just as an audience would, and and get my first impressions of it. And then you know, as you you work on it or you study it, you try to. You know, to refine that and narrow it down so it's more specific. So there was a time when you lived with your grandmother and a separate time yeah, you lived with your parents? Yeah, we would stay, we'd stay. I grew up with a, in a big family. There was eight kids. And, uh, Where are you in the birth order? I was in my older sister. So and uh, so you're number two? Yeah. You know, and 
and uh, the oldest boy. But um, so it, it was. We would spend some time with her, and it was in St. Paul, even though my parents lived in Minneapolis. So in the summers and things like that, we would stay in St. Paul. And at that time, St. Paul was really different than Minneapolis. I mean, there was ragmen with horses and carts on the cobblestone streets, and you'd be in Minneapolis, which was much more, you know. Modern, I guess you'd say. What about the communities in each city um, that you lived in? Yeah, I lived in Selby and Dale in, in St. Paul, and then in Minneapolis. I lived in South Minneapolis, so it was a little bit different. Um, both of them were prim primarily black neighborhoods at the time, um, and uh, it, you know, it sort of was a kind of until I started going into. I went to a private school in the middle of of uh, grade school um, around the third grade and that was kind of really my first introduction really to a, a white white environment um, that was How different was it? for me. It was hard, I mean really hard at first and um, because it was, it was so it was so different than how you know but I could always go home and so I would go I'd go to the school and then I'd come home. So does that mean that you were comfortable you became acclimated and comfortable in a white world in some part of your life. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, you learn to, to, to watch and listen and, and to sort of put your radar out there to see where they're coming from first. Um, I, I was just telling somebody that my first friend at the school was a white, um, white kid named Matthew and, and we were, I went the first day in school, I mean we were instant friends, instant friends until, I mean we were real close until I went over to his house. And once his parents had, you know, seen me, this was in the, again in the end of the third grade. Um, they told him that he they shouldn't play with me, and that that uh, whatever they told him, I was a bad person. The next day, he came back, and he was totally different. And that was the end of our friendship forever. Even though I continued, we stayed in the same school for another four years, five years. It was the end of of that, and it was sort of the end of that innocence that, that you realize, oh wait a minute, there's something else happening here. Did you talk to someone about what was happening? At the time, no, no. I mean, it just. I mean, I told my parents, but you know. What they say? They said, "That's life. <laughs> no, this is this is the way." I mean, this it just it was that. I mean, there. That stuff you knew, growing up black, even in Minnesota, you understood that because I remember when you couldn't eat at uh, Kresge's, which is gone now, and 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 Grant's downtown. There was a time you didn't, couldn't do that, and there was a time that you sat in the back of the bus. I mean, I remember those times. I'm old enough to remember those times. So it wasn't like you didn't know. Is just that that when it happens when some when you're younger and it's a, in a child situation, um, it's a little more difficult because you're not sure what they've said and what they, you know, what is wrong with me. You know, I mean, school, is, especially grade school through high school, is such a difficult time. Anyways, um, how do you think it, that uh, life has changed for being a black person in Minnesota from when you were 10 years old to let's say now? I think it's changed. I mean, it's, it's a curious thing. I think it's changed a lot, but I think it's this something strange is happening, and I'm not sure what it is. I think there's a certain amount of, and in in not just in, in this city, but over in overall, there's a, a renewed sort of overt racism that was er, here earlier on. I mean. I remember when I was 10 years old, they burned crosses in the lawns of anybody who moved out of certain neighborhoods. Um, that's, that for a long time wasn't here, and now all of a sudden it's starting up again, and I don't know where that is, so it's kind of a strange time to ask that question, because normally five years ago I'd have probably said it's changed a lot and it's, it's gotten a lot better, but now all of a sudden it seems like it's, it's kind of going the other way again, and, and um, there's just a lot more 
racially based incidents happening. Do you live in a white neighborhood here in town? Um, primarily, I think it is. Yeah, I get, yeah, it is primarily. It's um, by Lake Harriet, Lake Calhoun area. Does that feel okay, or does it sometimes feel weird? Um, I had lived there before when I was 18 and first moved out of the house, so I, it's kind of, for me, it's a real familiar situation. Um, and that's when, one reason I wanted to move back, because I liked it so much. I, I think if you're going to live in Minnesota, you should only live near a lake. I mean, or it doesn't, you might as well live in Kansas or someplace like that. But, so, to me, it was the making that kind of choice, uh, more so than any, even thinking about the, the, the mix of the neighborhood. Um, I like black neighborhoods in general and, ha and have lived in them, um, but I like a cosmopolitan situation too. I mean, it's kind of, I like things to be different, I like things to be exciting, I like things to be interesting, I like them to be um, enlightening. Um, you know, it's, I lived in, in L.A., I lived in the Barrio when I first moved to L.A. Um, that was, a, I mean, that's how I learned my street Spanish and all that. You had to learn it because that's all they ever spoke. I was the only black in the building um, that I lived in, the apartment building I lived in, in the neighborhood. So it was, I learned that aspect of it, which was different. It wasn't a choice, it was pure economics, the reason I lived there. Um, and then I moved into uh, a black neighborhood, and then I moved into an Armenian neighborhood. And so it, 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 I don't really, again, I, I don't really feel comfortable or uncomfortable. I just accept it and learn from it and, and get what I, I think you can get from that situation. I mean, I lived on 105th, you know, and 5th Avenue in New York, and, you know, that's like right on the outskirts of, of East Harlem. So, you know, I, that was interesting to me too, you know. And comfortable in and of its own ways. I lived in Bed Stuy in New York, which you know, which was another experience of, in and of itself. I mean, it was cold and cold and cold. I mean, there's cold water, no heat, and winter, and uh, and it was a it was in the places called. It's a very I mean, it's changing now more. So Bed Stuy has a real strong program for redeveloping itself, but I mean, it was like looking out at a war zone every morning, getting up and, and walking out into that. And, and you always had the feeling that this might be the last time that you were going to come back. You, you always were aware of that in that neighborhood, is that anybody on the street could take you out if they needed to, you know, for whatever reason. You know, and um, I, I guess that even that experience was good for me because it, I had never lived like that. I had never seen that kind of thing. But, and it gave me a, a reality base in, in, in my life where I said, okay, people have to live here. See, I will get to another level and I will move out of here. Some people have to live in that every day. And what can I do, what can I bring to them to help them either get through this or get to the next level so that they can make the change or even improve the situation that they're in? Um, that was very important to me. You had to live there because of no money for rent. Yeah, it was. It was. You know, it's a pl place you could afford to live. Um, you know, I've had periods of no money. <laughs> you know, so, which is okay too. Is it? Yeah, it is actually. I think it's important to know that you can survive. I mean, really survive, 
really survive. I mean, where, you know, you, ha you have a dollar a day to spend, and that means you have to budget what you eat and where you go. This Bed-Stuy apartment, it had no heat, and I also couldn't do anything on the weekend, so I used to stay in bed because it was the warmest place in the room and read all weekend, you know, and it was cheap to do that. <laughs> how, how old and, were you then? Uh, I was 30. It wasn't that long ago. So then how is it being a black man in the world of film and TV and music making? It's, I think it's changed a lot. When I first started out, I mean, I sort of was in, um, wanted to be film, and, and uh, wanted to get involved in film for a long time when I was young, up until probably the time I was 14. Then I sort of, I did some theater and, and studied and did those kind of things. And then I sort of got into the music business because, again, I played and I did that for a period of time and, and at that time there really wasn't anybody who got out of, out of Minneapolis. I mean Prince really was the first black entertainer other than Oscar Pettiford that ever really got out of here and went on to, to do something. Um, there was a lot of clubs in this town to play in and a lot of the people that I know I still know, you know. Like? Uh, like uh, Gregory Hines, who, uh, you know, I mean, not Gregory Hines, Gary Hines, who sounds of blackness, and and you know, Maurice, and a lot of other people who who are still playing, but there was no no way for us to to move on. Um, you know, Gary's been with Sounds of Blackness for 20 years, you know, and uh, so what happens was that that that. I decided that I didn't want to do this anymore after a while, and after I'd been on the road and done some things musically, I really felt that I was losing myself and what I really, really wanted to do, and that was film, and so I, I got back into that, and, and with doing that, um, there still wasn't any environment in film for, for black uh, 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 makers, nor really in theater, but I kept trying to do as much as I possibly could and not let the color situation be a problem. Was I mean, it ever a problem? Um, to a certain extent, I mean, if you wanted to do black films or you had that kind of aesthetics, black aesthetics, yeah, you, but I decided that I wanted to learn how to do it. I mean, I worked, you know, in, in television. There's, there, at KTC at the time had an intern program. I did a couple of days. Here? Here, here well, not in this building, but when they first started. Um, I worked, uh, did uh, lights and, and uh, worked for what's called Community News when there was a labor temple, which was a performance. I worked doing the lights for them. Um, anything that I could do to learn to, to be better in whatever area so that it wasn't about being black, but it was about being really good. And that's kind of how I worked it. I, and when I decided to go to schools, I decided to pick a curriculum that I had found in a Russian film book and follow that. And uh, I, I chose the schools. I went to the University of Minnesota. I went to the community college here in Minneapolis. I went to the College of Art and Design, and then I went to USC because I figured that all I want to do is be good, and I, wanna, and I, and I would pick the, the subjects that would make me better and would make me more rounded and, and a better filmmaker, ultimately. What years were you at USC in LA? Um, at 70, it would be 76 through 79. I graduated in 79. So what was that about for you? Learning how to be a filmmaker, yeah. being in LA, being yeah. introduced to a scene of grand hustling? Yeah, well, I, I tell you, my car broke down when I got to LA, and if it would have been working, I would have left. So <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> I didn't like LA. I'm still not wild about it, but um, 
SC was a tough school. It was, I mean, it was, it's a technical school, and they tell you that as soon as you walk in, and they also tell you you're behind. You, SC brings in the best from all over the world. At, at the time I went there, there was only, um, there was like 130 students. And I mean, that was out of, you know, 3,000 applications. So you, you realize that you were the best of, uh, of, a, of a lot of good people. I mean, I, I, it's hard for some students, because some students that get into the school are the best, you know, students from their college. But when they come to USC, they're just one of, you know, yeah, just and like that's really difficult. Yeah. I, I, I sort of just rallied to it and said, I'm not going to let this thing beat me. Again, it's, I wanted to be really, really good at this and wanted to be the best I could, so I really... Where does his drive come from? I don't know. I really don't know. It's like, I, it, I don't know. I mean, again, it's been there since I've been five. I've wanted to do entertainment. I've wanted to make shows. I've but why? Me. I, I don't What's know. What's the goods? What's the um, payoff? I think it, I probably, it's like being a preacher. I, it really is. To me, it's, it's like I think that it's a forum to communicate, um, to teach, and to educate people. Um, and I think that it, I, I think if you can ch help somebody and teach them and they can learn from what you, you can, what you show them, I think that's really the value of it. I think entertainment is good in, in and of itself because I think that it changes and lightens the load, the daily load. But I think you need to learn something. I also think that, that the importance of that work is, is hope. I really do. When I was a musician, and that was part of the problem I was having with music, I wasn't a writer. I'm not, and I never was that good as a musician to be able to sit down and say, I'm going to write, and I was going to write like songs like Sting or, or, like, uh, or like Prince or, or like and Jimmy, you know, the songs that would, would do the same kind of process, but I've always been able to understand what a good story was. I've always been able to understand what a good performance was. I always knew that medium, and so it's really why I said, listen, I got to move from music because I can't, I'll never be able to, to preach the way I really feel and believe in my heart if I'm continuing to do that. Did you hold on to that motivation and belief in the preaching even while you went out to L.A.? Yeah, oh yeah, I did. Um, I was a zealot, and <laughs> I was. In, actually, I had a, an interesting teacher, um, a documentary film teacher, who was actually had been a, uh, a, a, a uh, I, mean, I don't know if you call him a Nazi, but had been in the German uh, army and had been a filmmaker over there. His name was Wolfie, and uh, Wolfgang was his real name, but I used to call him Wolfie. Who really took me aside and really taught me how to make films so that I I, I wouldn't like become a propagandist, that I would be be a, more of a realist, as and he showed me he showed me films that he had made, and and really, really helped to shape me as opposed to me being so much of a preacher and saying we're going to do this and these you know revolution now and all that. He really focused me to say this is what people really can accept and this is what is true and real. And yeah, I mean, it was um, this is, comes from a man who made propaganda yeah, films oh, that's for what the he Nazis. Did for, yeah, that's what he did for uh, for during World War II. Um, yeah, so it was, a, and he had, he, he caught me doing this because he was reading the papers that I wrote in school and realized that I was like going, he says, nobody listens to an angry young man, is what he told me when he brought me into his office. He says, this is what you need to do, you have good talent, you've got good insight, and, and I will show you how to structure this. Yeah, it was really... You had no problem with his politics? No, because he was, I think he was right. I really believe that he shaped me 
I mean, also, I mean, Wolfie, first of all, you have to understand that he was young when he was doing it. He wanted to make films. That's what he wanted to do, and he got into a system. I don't know if he ever believed in what Hitler had to say as much as he believed in how you can manipulate the, the material and show people. I mean, you, you watch uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's movies, um, either one of them, uh, the Olympiad and, and the Triumph of the Will, and I mean, everybody starts to have this feeling of Aryan. I mean, you know. Yeah, so they're effective. Yeah, and I think that's what, that's the, what I'm saying is that he was teaching me how that that becomes propaganda, and what you have to do is, is see that and understand that, and, and to try to, to do that is not the, what film is really about. I guess what I find surprising is that mm -hmm. you would have a, a relationship with him in which you would trust him, given his past politics and the regime which he worked for. Yeah, I, he, I think it was the way he approached me. I mean, it really was, he, he, had, he, had, he had read me, my stuff, and I think he saw something there, and he came to me. I mean, I didn't go to him. He came and called me and said, I want you to take a meeting with me. And, we, I stay, and then I started going to his office regularly, night after night, and we talked, and he showed me things, and, and uh, it let me read things, and, and it just was really an education for me. Um, Do you know where he is now? No, I know he did. He left and went back to Germany probably right after, uh, probably that was the first year I was at SC, so it was probably around 70. So were you an angry young man then? Were you a radical? Yeah, I mean, that, I was. I mean, I wanted, I believed in, you know, the whole, I believed in, you know, film could change the world, and if you did, you know, all you needed to do was to show, and uh, I mean, I bore. I, mean, I studied communism. I did all those things, before, you know. And and uh, my mom was going to kill me for this one. Communism. <laughs> I just studied. You know. Why would she kill you? Uh, she's just really. She's always. Every time I go into one of these social um, statements, she always like. Uh, she has. She's very much, you know, traditional American. Well, what does she object to? Um, she believes they're going to snatch you out of out of your home and take you someplace. If you, know, you talk if about you communism talk about openly. Communism, right, exactly. I, just, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's a lot of that Paul Robeson thing, you know, it's like, you know, they'll get you if you have any kind of other sympathies other than, you know, traditional American mm -hmm. you know, attitudes and ideas. Kind of where I, Tell I, me I about your children. Tell you about them. <laughs> How many? Who are they? Um, Who are there's, they? Okay, there's, I have a daughter that, that's, that's 14. Now she lives in LA right now, um, by my first marriage, and I have a daughter, a stepdaughter who's 12, and uh, I have a son that's that's uh, eight. And uh, um, is the stepdaughter to, from a present marriage? Yeah, mm -hmm. present marriage. And um, it's they're great kids for me. It's really and your son. Son is where, where is he? You mean, is he from another wife? Oh, he's from, yeah, he's from um, uh, another relationship earlier on, another wife before Deanna. He's a 12-year-old. Um, for me, it's, they helped to ground me and to um, give me some purpose, you know, beyond my own, um, and give me something to work for, too. I see, I learn from them, I see what they are like, I see what they're interested in, I see what they look for in, in their lives, even their young lives. Um, and it's, I guess, I don't know how a filmmaker or any, anybody in, in the media can do some of the things they do if they have children. 
and I'm talking about things you know that are offensive and you know I don't know how somebody could uh, make a slasher film against women and have daughters I mean I, I don't understand how you could even contemplate that um, because you see how you see them um, it makes you concerned about the world uh, uh, not just for yourself um, I'm halfway through this life so it's, I, I have to look at what's what, halfway I'm 40 <laughs> you know? um, I, it makes me look at the the of the world and and Russia and uh, the ecology and and the animals and because I want them to have something I mean I already you already know it's changed I mean we used to go out trick or treat and you can't do that in America anymore and that's gone that innocence is gone okay you have to accept it but how can we keep what we have you know, how can kids go to the park by themselves without you panicking if you, they don't come home in an hour or if you don't check up on them and they're at their friend's house? You know? I mean, all that stuff that we, that I, people our age kind of grew up with, that uh, uh, we took for granted, is gone now. Craig Grace, thanks for being with us on Portrait. Thank you. Funding for this TPT archival podcast was made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.